Welcome to episode one of season three of Free the Seed, the open source seed initiative podcast that tells the stories of new crop varieties and the plant breeders that develop them. I'm your host, Rachel Hiltongren. This podcast is for anyone interested in the plants we eat. Farmers, gardeners, and food curious folks who want to dig deeper into where their food comes from. It's about how new crop varieties make it into your seed catalogs and onto your tables. In each episode, we hear the story of a variety that has been pledged as open source from the plant breeder that developed it. And our guest today is Edmund Frost. Edmund is an organic farmer and seed activist based in Louisa, Virginia. He focuses on several aspects of Southeast regional seed work, including seed production, plant breeding, variety trials research, and variety preservation. Edmund runs a small seed company called Commonwealth Seed Growers and co-manages seed production at Twin Oaks Seed Farm. We'll be talking today about South Anna butternut, a butternut squash that Edmund has been working on for the past nine years. Hi, Edmund. Welcome to Free the Seed. Hi, Rachel. It's good to be here. So I'd like to start by talking about the impetus for this project. The primary trait of interest with South Anna is its resistance to downy mildew, which is a fungus-like disease that affects plants in the squash family. So I'm curious, what was the process of deciding that this was a project that you wanted to take on? Did you talk to other farmers or gardeners that told you that it was something that you needed? Or was it a personal experience that mainly drove that decision? So I started the project in 2011, quite a while ago now. And it was based on experiences of having cucurbit crops that died from downy mildew. We had cucumbers, winter squash, melons, especially in 2010 and 2009, that did really badly from downy mildew. So it was really on my radar from that. And I guess in in 2010, we had a seminal pumpkin seed crop that did very well despite there being a lot of downy mildew pressure. So I noticed that, and I was excited about it. And the next year I thought, well, I'm growing some butternut, just some waltham butternut for produce, and why don't I just plant some seminole plants next to it? So that's really how I got started, was I just grew the two varieties together and let them cross. And I didn't know a whole lot about plant breeding at that point, but that's how how it started. So I'd like to ask you how you decided on Waltham and to describe the seminal pumpkin a little bit more in just a minute, but maybe you can tell us a bit more about downy mildew. So what does it look like if a field of cucumbers or squash is infected with that disease? So downy mildew, unlike powdery mildew, which shows up as a white powder that's very visible on the leaves before the plant starts to die from it, downy mildew can just look like the leaves just shriveling up and dying. You don't necessarily see the mildew uh, when you look at the leaf. If you look at the underside of the leaf, you can see a little bit of gray spores, but it's a lot less visible than powdery mildew. So yeah, what you see is just your foliage start to die and it can spread very quickly and it can easily just wipe out all of the foliage in a susceptible variety when you have downy mildew pressure that's significant. And when all of the leaves die, that can basically wipe out the crop. Right. It doesn't directly affect the fruits, but when the leaves all die, that stops the plant from being able to produce sugars that go into the fruit. 
So you end up with drastically lowered production and lowered quality of fruit. When you say it doesn't affect the fruit directly, you mean it doesn't cause the fruit itself to rot? Right. Yeah, it affects the fruit often dramatically in terms of productivity and in terms of sweetness, but it doesn't directly cause the fruit to rot. How does the disease spread? So it has a really interesting life cycle, and it's actually similar to late blight in tomatoes. It can't survive freezing temperatures. So basically it overwinters in parts of the country, like South Florida or South Texas, or in Mexico or Cuba. It it overwinters in places where it doesn't freeze. And then every year, the downy mildew spores blow north on the wind and gradually work their way up the East Coast, often all the way up to Canada. There's also some speculation that there might be downy mildew that overwinters in greenhouses if there are greenhouses that don't experience freezing conditions. So that may also be a source of of infection. And then once the downy mildew arrives in whatever way it arrives, the amount of spores keep building. And the more spores that you're producing in your crop, the more it's going to sort of exponentially keep affecting that crop and the crops nearby. So it's not something where if you manage your soil really well and you manage the disease by roguing out individuals that have it and getting those off of your farm, because it blows in on the wind every year, there's really no way for one given farm to be immune to it other than growing resistant varieties. Yeah, that's that's my assessment. I think looking for resistant varieties is central. Most varieties that we commonly grow as market farmers are not resistant. I've had to look further afield to find resistant sources, and that's for South Anna and other winter squashes, but also for the downy mildew resistant cucumbers I've worked on. Tell me more about the seminal pumpkin. What's the story behind that? Where did it come from, and what does it look like? So seminal pumpkin comes from Florida, and it's it actually can grow wild in Florida, and I don't know the exact origins of it. Native people have been probably growing that variety or something similar for a really long time. The strain of seminal pumpkin that I've been growing was, I believe, introduced by Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. And it's the color of a butternut, a little bit deeper tan, and they're usually two to three pounds and either round or teardrop-shaped. And it's the same species as butternut, which is Cucurbita machata. Right. I wanted to point out that the word pumpkin often makes people think of jack-o'-lanterns, but as you've said, the seminal pumpkin is in the same species as butternuts, and that's actually a different species from jack-o'-lanterns. Pumpkin is not really a precise botanical term. It's a folk name that people use for varieties in any of the cucurbita species. So you started this project by seeing that seminal pumpkin had really good downy mildew resistance. And was it the case that there just wasn't any downy mildew resistance in a more traditional butternut-shaped squash? So when I started the project, I wasn't really working with a lot of different kinds of butternut. I had tried out three or four kinds at that time. If I was to start it again, I might I might have used a different butternut Why is that? in the cross with Sentinel. There are varieties that hold up a little bit better to downy mildew than Waltham. None of them are resistant. None of them hold up well, but Waltham is maybe 
one of the least resilient to downy mildew. But it was what I knew about, and I knew that it has good eating quality, it's productive, it's the shape that people want, and so it's what I use. And I think it's, you know, ultimately has worked just as well as, as a different variety would have worked because I've been able to get the full resistance of Seminole and probably even better than that into the South Anna. You've said that the qualities of Waltham that you were looking for or that you found attractive were its eating quality and the shape that people recognized. What goes into good eating quality in a squash? For most dessert winter squashes, something like a spaghetti squash would be kind of a different category, but most winter squashes, what people are looking for is sweetness and flavor, which is a little bit hard to measure. And then also dry matter has a lot to do with with good eating quality. So squashes that have lower dry matter tend to be watery. When you cook them, you end up with a lot of water in the bottom of the baking pan and and then the, the flavor just kind of tastes watery. So there's a dry matter test that I do, which is you cut a small piece of a given squash that you want to test and you weigh it. You have to have a precise scale and then you dehydrate it completely and then you weigh it again. And so you can calculate the percentage of the weight that's made up of just dry matter once you've completely dehydrated it. And usually a good quality eating squash is going to be at least 11 or 12% dry matter up to about 20%. And when you get, when you start to get below 10, people are going to probably think of it as kind of watery, bland. I don't always actually do that dry matter test because I, I can get a sense of it just by doing a taste test, but it's a good way to get started. If you have a whole lot of different squashes that you're trying to compare and keep data on, you can do dry matter tests and have, have a number there that you can compare the squash quality. So Waltham has good dry matter and good flavor, and mm-hmm. the seminal pumpkin has this disease resistance that you were hoping to get into a Waltham-like squash. Yeah, there's a little bit more to it. I find that Seminole usually also has good flavor and dry matter, but it also has a very large seed cavity. So the amount of edible squash that you get out of it from pumpkin is pretty low. Also, it's not the butternut shape that people are used to. And it's not just the dry matter test that I do to evaluate the squash. I'll also do a sugar test, a bricks test. I have a bricks meter. And that's that's also an important way to get data about how the different squashes compare. And then in, in addition to that, I taste them because sometimes there's squashes that have good dry matter and good sweetness, but I just think don't taste quite right. So it's all three of those methods together. Yeah, actually eating the squash is a really important part before deciding that it's something that you think other people might want to eat. Right. And it has to be cooked. You can't really get a good sense of it by sampling the raw squash. Have you tried? Yeah, I have tried. How was it? When you just try raw squash, you can get a sense of the sweetness, but the flavor is just going to be really different when it's cooked. And also, when you try raw squash, you don't get any sense of texture or dry matter of the cooked squash. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not bad? Eating the raw squash. Um, yeah, was that pleasant? Yeah, I I like eating 
raw squash. I've been working with squash all often, nibble on it a bit, partly to get a sense of the sweetness and partly just because I like to eat it. But I I haven't really like used it to make a meal out of or make dishes out of, although I think that could be something to explore. So you've said that after you saw the seminal pumpkin doing well despite the downy mildew in the field, and you were growing Waltham as a produce crop, and you thought maybe the two of these could be good parents in a new project to develop a, a new variety of, of butternut squash. Tell me more about the process of of getting that project started. So, yeah, when I started, I knew very little about plant breeding, and I didn't actually know how to do hand pollinations. So I just planted some seminal next to the Waltham produce crop I was growing. Uh, so it was a planting that was mostly Waltham with a few seminal plants. And then I saved seeds from some of the seminal fruits. And then the next year I planted out that seed and I saved seed from the fruits that looked like they had gotten the Waltham shape into them, which was most of them. So you weren't doing those hand pollinations where you move pollen from one plant that you want to be a parent onto the female parts of the other plant that you want to be a parent, but by growing them close to one another, because there are insects, mostly bees, flying between the flowers of the different plants, you were confident that at least some of the pollen from Waltham would get on to at least some of the flowers of the seminal pumpkins? Right. At least that was my hope. But yeah, I expected that there would be at least some crossing, and it was there was a good bit of crossing. So it was a perfectly adequate way to start out. And then I kind of worked on this every year since then. And every year I've gotten a little bit more knowledge about how to do selections. And I've learned a whole whole lot more about the process since 2011 when I started. I think that's a, a common story is for folks who are interested in a plant breeding project and get going. We learn a lot as we go. And yeah. that can be really positive. You know, we don't have to have all of the information just to get started. We can learn a lot and see where the projects take us. And it takes so long to get started on a new variety. It can be just really useful to make those crosses happen. And then you've got all winter to think about what to do next. So you've got plenty of time to, to research and talk to people and learn the process. Yeah. So you planted out the seeds that you had gotten from the seminal pumpkin. And when those plants grew up and put on fruit, you looked for the plants that had fruit that looked like Waltham, which to you indicated that those had been crossed by the bees. Mm -hmm. And then you said that you saved seeds from those plants Mm -hmm. and planted those out. Is that the same process that you took every year that you did selections? No, not, not exactly. The first year of growing the cross was 2012. And I just looked for fruits that had a shape somewhere in between Seminole and Waltham, and that indicated that they'd been crossed and saved seed from those. And then I took that seed and planted it out in 2013. And that's when each year I got a little bit more involved in the selection. So the first year in 2012, I was just looking for stuff that had been crossed. If I had done the cross by hand, I wouldn't have had to even do any selection. I could have just known that it was all crossed and just save a seed. The first generation after you make a cross, the F1 hybrid is generally uniform and it's not, you don't start making selection that year. So the first two years of a breeding project where you make the cross 
and then you grow out the F1, you can be working with pretty small numbers of plants and not actually doing a lot of selection work. But then starting in the second generation after the cross, which is the F2 generation, that's when a whole lot of genetic diversity shows up in the plants, and that's when you start doing selection. What did that F2 generation look like? So there were some that looked kind of like Seminole. There were some that looked like a butternut. I remember that there was also variation in size. I remember some pretty large fruited ones. Again, I was just getting started at the process, so I didn't have a huge grow out. I think that was maybe 40 or 50 plants in the F2 generation. And my selection that year was just to find the plants that survived and still had vines that were alive at frost. And to me, that, that indicated that they had better disease resistance. But I was just letting all the plants intertwine with each other at that point. So I, I when I went out to do the harvest and the evaluation, I had to um, track down where the fruits were from each plant, which took a little while. That could be really difficult. Yeah, it's not necessarily the way I recommend doing it. Or it's not the way I do it anymore, but I think it was actually a fairly functional way to start the project. You know, some of the plants were completely dead in early October, and some of them were still pretty alive and had good yields of fruit. So that was my first year of selection. And I didn't even really get into eating quality that year. I was just looking at plants that could stay alive the whole season in the face of the downy mildew pressure and also shape and productivity that first season of selection. After that first season of selection, did you have a population that was fairly uniform for downy mildew resistance, or is that a trait that you have continued to select on? I have continued to select on that, and I wouldn't say it was uniform, but it was already a big improvement. So I saved seed from the second generation, and the seed you saved from the second generation of the cross is called F3 seed. And I did a big winter squash variety trial in 2014. And that F3 seed of the Seminole Waltham cross did very well for downy mildew resistance, especially well compared to the Waltham. But it, even, it was even close to the Seminole for downy mildew resistance. So yeah, I was, I was very pleased that it was already starting to work at that point. And by variety trial, for those who haven't conducted one, you just mean to grow as many different varieties that fit what you're looking for as you have space for, and just planting many plots of the crop, one plot per variety or a couple of plots per variety if you have the space, and comparing all of the traits that you're interested in between those many varieties, all growing at the same time in the same field. Yeah, that's right. And there's there's different kinds of variety trials you can do. A more formal variety trial will be one where you're you have each variety planted in several different locations, and that can kind of help you confirm the data that you're getting. But you can also do what's called an observation trial, where you just grow one plot of each thing and take data or make observations. And in a lot of cases, that can be adequate for getting a sense of things. So it's kind of a matter of what you have space and resources to do, but really just getting out there and trying things. And Organic Seed Alliance has a really good little manual that's free on their website about how to set up a variety trial. I definitely recommend looking at that. Yeah, I'll share a link to that in the show notes. Okay. So in the variety trials, you grew a patch 
or a plot of this F3 seed from your cross next to or close to a patch of Waltham and a patch of seminal pumpkin so that you could see them and make direct comparisons to how they did that year in the field. Right. It was a trial that included 20 or so other squash varieties as well. Those other 20 varieties, did those not do very well with the downy mildew? What I found in that trial and have seen since is that there are actually a lot of tropical varieties of cucurbita machata that are pretty downy mildew resistant. And I had some of those included in the trial that did well for downy mildew. There's different issues that they have to make them maybe not ideal for growing here. Some of them have splitting issues. Most of them are very large fruited, which is not what a lot of market growers are looking for in this country. And the eating qualities can be variable too. So yeah, this is kind of a long answer, but in that 2014 trial, there were tropical varieties that did well for downy mildew, but the temperate varieties that I tried didn't do well for downy mildew, and that especially includes Waltham. Starting in 2015, and every year since then, I've done a much more intensive breeding trial where I have usually about 100 plants that I train separately and evaluate separately. And so you know, looking at the productivity and food shape, food color, and all the eating quality. You know, I'm just testing and tasting several squash from from each of the promising plants out there. Also looking at the downy mildew on the foliage. And I'm in my fifth year of that more intensive selection that includes the big eating quality focus. You know, I think I got a, a good start early on in terms of finding downy mildew resistance, but these last five years have kind of been central to making the variety what it is in terms of its combination of productivity, eating quality, downy mildew resistance. Do you do the taste testing by yourself, or do you have other folks that help you with that? Yeah, I like to have other people's input, just so it's not only what I like, but it's important that I taste everything so that I know how everything compares to each other. How do you prepare the squash for taste testing? I bake the squash, and when I'm testing a whole lot of different fruits at the same time, I'll usually cut off a portion of the end of the squash so I can fit maybe a dozen or more squash on the same baking pan. And I'll bake them at 375 and make sure that they're fully cooked when I bring them out of the oven and let them cool a little bit, then I can go ahead and taste them. I know a lot of people eat squash with things like brown sugar or maple syrup. Do you use those when you do taste testing? No, I just taste them plain. And I'm really going for a squash that doesn't need those things added. That's sweet and rich and flavorful and is good eating without anything added. Do you have any advice on how to pick the best butternut at a grocery store or at a farmer's market? Is there any correlation between how it looks on the outside and how it tastes on the inside? Yeah, so riper butternuts are usually a darker color. So look for dark color. That's the main piece of advice I could give. There's a lot of butternuts on the market that are picked too immature and aren't very good eating quality. There's a lot of butternuts that have been grown in high downy mildew conditions that aren't good eating quality. Right, because you said that when the downy mildew comes and the plants die earlier than they would have otherwise, the 
the fruit don't get as much sugar as they would have. So that's probably pretty hard to tell at a grocery store. But if you go to a farmer's market and are able to talk with your farmer, you can ask them what varieties they're growing and see how they're handling the downy mildew. Yeah, um, that could help. There's not many downy mildew-resistant varieties available. So I guess you could just ask them, like, how is your crop this year? And if they feel like it was a healthy crop, they're more likely to be tasty butternuts. So that and, and color. How do farmers conventionally manage downy mildew? So if they don't have resistant varieties, is there anything that a farmer can do to save their crop from the disease? I'm an organic farmer, and even as an organic farmer, I don't really use disease control sprays. There may be products available now that that will give some results on an organic farm. It's not my focus. And in conventional farming, my understanding is that there are fungicides that are widely used for downy mildew and that they're used in actually in pretty large quantities on a pretty regular basis. Part of my work is focused on trying to decrease the amount of those kind of chemicals that people are spraying. Yeah, that points to the fact that it's a really powerful tool to have disease-resistant varieties on an organic farm because there might not be other disease management tools available, or those tools might not be very effective, or even if they are, a farmer might just not want to use any pesticides or fungicides on their farm, even those that are listed by the Organic Materials Review Institute and allowed in certified organic production. You know, I didn't exhaustively try different disease control space for downy mildew, but what I tried didn't really make a dent in it, and it's my understanding that the organic options for downy mildew control, though, you know, aren't super effective. And so, yeah, resistant varieties are, I think, key to dealing with certain diseases. Now that you're nine years into this project, how does South Anna differ from either of its parents? It's very different from both parents. It has a lot darker color than Waltham, and part of that is that I'm always letting the fruits get really ripe because the plants are alive longer. And part of it is that Seminole has a darker color, and that's gone into the South Anna. The shape is somewhat variable. They're 98% some kind of butternut shape, but they're a little bit more variation on what the necks look like and on the fruit size than Waltham. And starting in 2015, I really brought in a big focus on eating quality. And I think that's made a huge difference. I think I have something that's better eating quality than a Waltham. In terms of the sweetness and the dry matter, but also just I really like the flavor of it. And at this point, is South Anna as disease-resistant as the Seminole pumpkin? It's been a few years since I grew Seminole. I think that it is at least as resistant. It would be be good to check up on that to grow them side by side again. They're definitely more productive. You're definitely getting a whole lot more fruit out of it because the seed cavity is so much smaller and you've got a neck on them. So are you would you say you're done with with South Anna or is it still a work in progress? We started selling the variety as South Anna in twenty eighteen, but it's also is still a work in progress. So this year I've got 100 plants out there that are each trained separately, and 
right now it's early October. I'm going through and harvesting each plant, looking at the fruits, looking at the foliage, seeing how live it is. So each plant is going to get a foliage rating. I'll have a yield number. I'll have an average fruit size. I'll have notes on shape. So yeah, I want the plants that have good foliage, good yields, good shape. And then the, the plants with those characteristics, I'm going to also do eating quality tests on. So yeah, I'm still very much at it in terms of the selection. And I may take it in a couple of different directions. Growers that do butternut squash for processing, which is actually when you buy a can of pumpkin pie filling, it's usually butternut squash. So growers that grow for processing tend to want larger fruits and especially care about productivity on a like weight per acre basis. So I'm I'm thinking of starting a line in that direction and maybe starting a line with smaller fruits for market growers and probably keeping the somewhat more diverse line as South Anna. Have you heard any feedback from farmers or gardeners who grew the variety the past couple of years? Yeah, I've I've been getting feedback for several years on it, and I definitely hear that it has really good disease resistance, that it holds up a lot better than regular butternuts to downy mildew, and that it is really good eating quality. So yeah, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. The farmers that you've gotten feedback from, are they mostly in the Southeast, or do you sell seeds to folks all across the U.S.? Mostly in the Southeast, some in the Northeast. But I think South Anna is a little bit long season for northern New England, for instance. What are the conditions like in Virginia where you're growing? So our our last frost date in the spring is typically around the first week of May. And our first frost is about October 20th. It's very hot and humid in the summer. It can rain at any time. And it's kind of variable how much it rains. We're in kind of a drought right now, but last year it was incredibly rainy in the fall. Yeah, summer temperatures are usually in the high high eighties or low nineties. So I've I've read that you've collaborated with university researchers on cucurbit downy mildew work. At what stage mm-hmm. of the process of developing downy mildew resistant squashes did those collaborations start and what have they entailed? So Michael Mazurek from Cornell is the person I've worked with the most, and he really helped orient me to understanding how to how to work with winter squash and cucumbers. When I was doing the trials in 2014, he walked me through the process of how do you do bricks tests, how do you do dry matter tests, how do you set up the variety trial. Yeah, I just got a lot of advice and mentorship from Michael. He was the person that told me that I needed to train the plants separately. I want to just explain that where usually you let winter squash grow all together, let all the plants intertwine. But when you're doing selection work with cucurbits, you usually want to be able to look at each plant separately. And with winter squash, it's really important because you want the best combination of eating quality and productivity. And if you don't look at each plant separately, you might be selecting for one of those at the expense of the other. So the other collaboration that Michael and I have had is that when I've done variety trials of both cucumbers and winter squash, he sent me some of their material to try out. And that's been 
useful to us because they've had some really good downy mildew resistant cucumbers especially and it's been helpful to them to be able to get information of how how their material grows in Virginia conditions. So that's been, you know, a mutually beneficial relationship. And I've gotten ideas and input from other folks as well. How did you get connected with these folks? I got connected with all these folks through Organic Seed Alliance. They have a conference every two years. It's usually in Oregon. The first one I went to was 2012. And I, I think that's where I met Michael Mazurik. And we started having a back and forth at that point. I'd like to talk about the fact that you've pledged South Anna as an open source variety with the Open Source Seed Initiative. How did you first get involved in discussions about intellectual property or start thinking about this issue yourself? I've thought a lot about intellectual property with plants, especially around GMOs. I, I was actually a anti-GMO activist before I was a seed grower, and I think a lot about food sovereignty and seed sovereignty and you know we have a a situation where a small number of corporations control most of the seeds that people use and a lot of gardeners and even most farmers even most organic farmers don't really have the familiarity and the know-how to to save their own seeds and to work with their own seeds and to do selection and do breeding work so I really care about bringing some of that knowledge back, especially in my region. In the Southeast, it's especially important because most sustainable and organic seed companies are not located in the Southeast, so they're not researching or selecting or focusing on issues that we care about in the Southeast. So it makes it all the more important to, to do that work here. So I've, I've had those kind of ideas on my radar for a long time, and I think I first heard about Aussie open source seed initiative and at one of the organic seed alliance conferences and started thinking about it and I definitely thought it was an interesting idea and I think it was at the 2016 conference I ran into Carol Deppy and she she's on the Aussie board and I did a presentation about our squash work and I got to talking with her about it and about South Anna and she had some Aussie pledge forms right there and she talked me into to doing it, which I'm, you know, thrilled about, but that's how it happened. For folks who haven't heard all of the episodes of this podcast, the Open Source Seed Initiative has a pledge that plant breeders can sign that expresses their intention to make their variety something that anyone can use for breeding work without restriction, and with the intention that no restrictive intellectual property rights will be claimed on that variety or on the results of any breeding project using that variety as a parent. The pledge reads... You have the freedom to use these Aussie-pledged seeds in any way you choose. In return, you pledge not to restrict others' use of these seeds or their derivatives by patents or other means, and to include this pledge with any transfer of these seeds or their derivatives. What do you see as being the impact of having signed this pledge for South Anna? It's my understanding that Monsanto breeders aren't willing to work with Aussie-pledged varieties. I think that's huge. I've seen some of the kinds of utility patents that Monsanto has taken out on cucumbers. They're really upsetting, and I like the idea that that this material isn't going to be used in that way. What's the impact of 
Monsanto having those utility patents, what does that do to farmers or, or to other plant breeders? I think it, my understanding of utility patents is that a lot of them wouldn't hold up in court, but they're granted by the patent office, which is, you know, probably underfunded. And just the existence of these patents keeps people from from doing whatever the patents say not to do. So my my example with the cucumbers is that there was a variety from India. It's in the USDA's seed bank. You can actually get it from the USDA seed bank. It has a number. It's called 197088. And this has been known as a downy mildew resistant cucumber for a long time, at least since the 90s. And it's this little round russet colored cucumber. And it's it's done well in trials as a downy mildew resistance resistant variety, but it's also very different from standard American cucumbers. So it's not especially easy to use in a breeding project. And I'm not sure if people have used it for other breeding projects. But anyway, Monsanto used it recently to breed some of their new downy mildew resistant cucumbers. And they took out a utility patent on the idea of using this particular Indian cucumber variety as a downy mildew resistant source. So just the idea of using this as a parent in a cross, they claim is they're, you know, they're the only people that are allowed to do this, which is just crazy because it's this is a variety that Indian peasant farmers have been working with for a long time. It's already a cucumber. They've already been working at it with it as a downy mildew resistant variety because there's downy mildew in India that they're selecting against. But Monsanto took out this utility patent saying that they're the only ones that got to use the succession for downy mildew resistance breeding. It's just, it's just, there's just so much, I don't know. The audacity of it is just kind of stunning. And personally, I think there's better downy mildew resistant cucumber sources that I've seen and that I'm working with. But just the idea that Monsanto can say that they're the only people that get to create new cucumbers with this variety that's already a cucumber and just completely ignore the contribution of the farmers that created the variety is offensive. But I've talked to people who do work with cucumbers and they're not going to choose to work with this succession because of this utility patent. It's just too much of a pain. So the impact of university researchers not choosing to use that variety as a parent because it's too much work or too difficult to work with material that has a utility patent on it, that means that there are possibly varieties that could work for farmers that won't get developed or that won't get developed as quickly. That they're having to work around these hurdles and barriers to be able to work on crops that are important and might be useful to farmers. Okay. You know, with the example of this cucumber, there could be good varieties that public researchers could be coming up with based on this Indian accession, and they're not going to use it now. And like I said, there's other resistance sources that I think can work just fine. But yeah, it's the idea that Monsanto would be able to basically patent the use of a public domain variety that they have the benefit of having access to from the public domain is, is just ridiculous. So yeah, Open Source Seed Initiative is, is one 
way of countering these kinds of extreme privatization trends in seats. And, you know, I, I would love it if people maybe in different regions or with slightly different needs took South Anna and selected it in different ways or crossed it with different things to come up with new useful varieties. How did you decide on the name South Anna? And were there other names that you considered? I knew it was going to be South Anna pretty early on. South Anna is the name of the river near us, and I wanted to name something after the river. And I also, I liked that it had the word South in it, because South Anna is kind of a butternut for the South. So even though the name of the river isn't, it's not called South Anna because it's in the South. There's a North Anna and a South Anna River. But I liked I liked a variety with the name South in it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for someone wanting to start a breeding project? Or any advice specifically for a would-be squash breeder? I think variety trials are really important. And I don't necessarily mean a formal variety trial, but finding out what, what's out there. Because it could be that what you're trying to breed for already exists. Very likely it doesn't already exist, but if you try out a lot of stuff, you're going to be able to find the best parents for your project. You know, like South Anna, there was one that had more of the eating quality characteristics that I wanted and one that had more of the disease resistance characteristics or really any two traits that are present in two different varieties that you want to combine. You can start a breeding project, cross them together and start selecting for those traits. But yeah, knowing what's out there, having a good grasp on that is is a great way to start. And then other advice is come up with a need I felt really fortunate to come across this clear need for dining mildew resistant cucurbit varieties and felt like it was something that I was able to start working on that, you know, that was important and also within my capacity to work on. So thinking of a concept, what's really needed in, in your region or in your situation or in your system, and then coming up with ideas of how you might be able to get there. I've read all of Carol Deppie's books, and there is a sense of just excitement and possibility of, like, you can just start doing this work. There's so many things that you can make happen, and there's a lot of need, and it's really interesting and fun, and there's some complicated concepts, but they're not that complicated. So I, I know that that had a big influence on me as well in terms of getting started with plant breeding, and I'd recommend checking out her stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to those in the show notes also. Thanks for that. Do you have any final words for our listeners? I would really like to encourage people to, to get into this work if, if they have any interest in it. It's really fun and really interesting and really rewarding, and it's really possible to come up with varieties that work a lot better than what's already out there for your conditions. And there's also just this huge need to do this work regionally. There's not very many plant breeders in the Southeast of any kind. And I know that's true for other regions as well. You know, if you love working with plants, I think this is just really interesting work to get into, especially if you identify a need that's out there. So yeah, I just want to encourage people to do this work, and I would love to be available to 
talk to anyone about this, you can reach me at commonwealthseeds at gmail.com. Wonderful. That's really generous of you. I hope people take you up on it. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much, Edmund, for being on the show today. I really appreciate the time, and I've really enjoyed getting to hear more about South Anna. Yeah, thank you. I really love talking about this stuff. I've been speaking today with Edmund Frost of Twin Oaks Seed Farm and Commonwealth Seed Growers about South Anna butternut. Go to commonwealthseeds.com to find out how to buy seeds of the variety. I should make a note here regarding Edmund's references to Monsanto during our interview. Since it was purchased by Bayer in 2018, Monsanto no longer exists as a company name, but I didn't think to clarify that while Edmund and I were talking. Take a look at the show notes to see photos of South Anna, including a striking picture of the 2014 variety trial that Edmund talked about. We also have links to the Organic Seed Alliance's variety trial template that Edmund mentioned, and to Carol Deppie's books. You can find those on the Open Source Seed Initiative's website at osseeds.org. Full transcripts of each episode are also available there. The Organic Seed Alliance's Organic Seed Growers Conference, which Edmund mentioned, takes place every two years in Corvallis, Oregon, and will be happening next in February 2020. To learn more or to register to attend, go to seedalliance.org forward slash conference. You can get in touch with me at rachelholtengrin.com. You can find and like the Open Source Seed Initiative on Facebook and follow Free the Seed on Spotify or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Rachel Holtengrin, and this has been Free the Seed.